Hey Francis, do you need new investment ideas? No thanks, I've got all my cash tied up in Venezuelan crypto. Ah, how is Gringo Coin doing? It's pronounced Gringo Coin. My portfolio is now worth a billion Venezuelan bolivars. That's about three quid then. Uh, you're right, I should have got new investment ideas. Well, if you want to take back control of your finances, then Fortune and Freedom is for you. It was founded by Nigel Farage, who has over 40 years of experience in finance and politics. Fortune and Freedom is published by South Bank Investment Research and is for the investor looking to access a wide range of informed opinions on lots of different investing opportunities. Their brilliant newsletter covers everything from causes and the impact of inflation to the rise of cryptocurrencies, gold investing, and much more besides. Through their daily news commentary and special reports, Fortune and Freedom can give you more confidence in making informed decisions about what to do with your money. Simply go to fortuneandfreedom.com. That's fortuneandfreedom.com and sign up for a free newsletter that will help your money work for you. The link is in the description. Uh, so we've got a situation now, I think, where the hard-working core of the countries, which I love and, and, and respect, is being let down by this unaccountable pool of uh, Westminster reverse Darwinist uh, sort of <laughs> creatures who are supposed to be holding the civil service to account. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. We are delighted to say that our guest today is a businessman and the former chairman of Southampton Football Club, Rupert Lowe. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on. Listen, our UK viewers, I'm sure, particularly the football fans among them, will be very familiar with you. Uh, but a lot, we have a big international audience who may be less familiar. So tell everybody, first of all, who are you? How are you where you are? And what has brought you to be sitting in this chair talking to us? Well, I'm. my name is Rupert Lowe. I was born in Oxford in the Radcliffe Hospital. Uh, I'm a provincial lad. Uh, I basically was brought up on a farm where my father was a farmer. I'm a passionate farmer. I love farming. It's the one thing I think uh, is keeps everybody honest. You can't, uh, you can't uh, cheat nature. Uh, she keeps us all humble. So then I, uh, I was educated at the Dragon School, which is a fantastic school. Uh, it's less fantastic now. It's like every... They used to crush my school at rugby like, every like, time. Like mate. a lot of these uh, schools, it's become woke. <laughs> uh, then I went to Radley College, which is, again, uh, in, in local to Oxford. And then I went to Reading University, uh, after which I went into the city uh, because my father has been married many times and I didn't get on too well with one of my stepmothers, so I found my way into the city. As I say, I had very little... Uh, uh, contact to call on. I just went into the city, found my own way, ended up commodity broking, then stock broking. Uh, then I went uh, to Japan to work for Bering Securities. Uh, so I was Phillips and Drew, Bering Securities, Morgan Grenfell. Uh, and then I left Morgan Grenfell in 96 and took over as chairman of a company which I'd rescued, which I was an investor in, called Secure Retirement. Mm -hmm. uh, and we did a reverse takeover of Southampton Football Club. I was going to build the stadium, which I did, but I ended up getting involved in the football as well because I, I'm a reasonably competitive tennis player, a hockey player. I carried on playing hockey till I was 56, uh, played football at the Dragon School, even though most uh, of the football pundits claim I'm a, I'm a hockey and rugby supporting, uh, or I was a rugby supporting chairman. Um, 
And But during my time with Southampton, I've continued with other businesses. So I've got a wide experience of insurance. Uh, I've got businesses in contracting, so data and mechanical and electrical contracting. Uh, I've got a business which does heat, air source heat pumps. Uh, I, I, I basically, I'm an entrepreneur, I like to think. And, I, and I, what I love is I love the British people who are creative, entrepreneurial, hardworking, and left to their own devices, they will deliver a fantastic outcome. Uh, so the thing I've become frustrated with is that we've got far too much statism, uh, far too much oppression, far too much regulation, far too much state. So, you know, I, I'm keen now at the age of 64 to try and use my experience to change that, to get the, the people of this country to realise how talented they are, gain self-confidence. We're obviously now free of this post-war uh, experiment with a sort of global Europe, <laughs> uh, which I thought brought with it a, a great deal of injustice and unfairness. Uh, and I think the people of Europe will will suffer long term and we will benefit from Brexit uh, as a result of being a free sovereign nation. So so pretty much that's me. Uh, I uh, I still work reasonably hard. Uh, <laughs> I, still, I still play a bit uh, and I still enjoy life, which is the most important thing. That is a very important thing. And one of the things that strikes me about you is you have experience of managing big things. You have experience of working on big projects. And this is something that in the time Francis and I have been doing the show, I've noticed how my thinking has changed and my attitude has changed just running this small business. You know, there's six or seven of us or however many of the, us there are. And that already changes the mindset. So, And one of the things that strikes me particularly about our politicians is very few of them actually have experience of running big things. I mean, look at the current prime minister. By the time this goes out, he may no longer be prime minister. <laughs> but but let's say he still is. This isn't someone who has experience of running a huge institutional organisation and they're suddenly in a position to run the whole country. Uh, what do you make of the way that we are administered and governed in this country? Well, I, I think, again, people... The worst thing that ever happened was televising, was televising Parliament and it's turned some very average people into uh, sort of media... Uh, I wouldn't say stars, but they're sort of they're full of media attention. Uh, every word they say is listened to, and I think the misapprehension of the public is they assume that because they are part of this Westminster elite, that they're able people, and that when they're in number ten, they know what they're doing. Well, don't assume they know any more than you do because they don't. Uh, many of them, as you say, have had no experience of running a company, no experience of navigating the vagaries of public company, you know, limited liability, uh, of credit risk, of collecting VAT, national insurance, pensions, gift wrapping it, delivering it to the state. All of the risk that comes with being a director, you know, people assume being a director is, a, is, an, is, is all upside. It's actually in modern Britain, there's a hell of a lot of downside to it. So I think, I, I think people in Westminster it's become a bubble the selection processes that were followed by Blair and Cameron have meant that we've, we've got less able people, so the gene pool is weak. <laughs> it's almost like we've got reverse Darwinism. <laughs> that would certainly look, make sense when you look at Boris Johnson. Yeah. And, you know, you look at the decisions they've been making, mm. uh, 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 which, you know, uh, and sometimes now, in the past one, that it's all, all seemed to make sense. Now, I sometimes, I don't know about you, but I... I sort of wake up in the morning and I think, why does nothing make sense anymore? Mm. And the answer is because we've got people who don't know what they're doing leading us. So you've got Westminster, that's the, the gene pool for our leaders. 
supported by a civil service which, let's face it, over Brexit was at complete odds with the, with, with the electorate who voted to leave and it took to leave Europe and effectively it took four years before we managed to get ourselves out of Europe, thanks to the Brexit party, Nigel Farage, uh, and, and people who basically accused the state of not respecting uh, their masters who are the voters. So I, I honestly think we've got this disjoint between uh, those people who are leading us and those people who are working very hard in the economy. And for, for me, this was exemplified on Monday when uh, Lord Agnew of Oulton resigned, uh, who's government minister, over the bounce-back loan uh, fraud that's happening. So again, the state uh, has been pursuing, thanks to QE, buying its, getting high on its own supply, easing, as yeah. I call it, quantitative easing, uh, basically printing money in taxpayers' name and buying their own bonds and then effectively li liquefying the economy by giving this money to people in bounce-back loans, Sybil's loans and other centrally planned state support, which can, I, again, I Can I, I just interrupt you there, sure. uh, Rupert? Because there's, there's a lot of people, including a lot of economists, who go, what's the problem? We can just print money and there's going to be no problems whatsoever. It's modern monetary, th monetary theory, Rupert. Yeah. What's wrong with it? Where does water flow? <laughs> <laughs> downhill. Yeah. And, and this is going to flow downhill. Right. We have not yet seen the effects of quantitative easing, and they, they are coming and they will come, and everybody will regret the fact that we've done it. Uh, if you look at, if you look at, so, so just finishing off on, on that, you saw uh, Theodore Agnew resigned, and he resigned for a very good reason. He's a very honest, straight guy. Mm. And what you saw is you've got this, I, I have this image of these bounce-back loans, which were given, no checks were made or not enough checks. You know, they don't really understand, a lot of these people are dishing these out, the concept of limited liability companies that, you know, if you... If you trade with a company that's insolvent, you can lose everything. Well, if you give money to companies that are insolvent or haven't been trading or people who aren't honest, you won't get it back. Uh, and under the limited liability uh, situation, they just walk away mm -hmm. and you end up with a debt, which is, again, a taxpayer debt. Meanwhile, on the other side of that, you've got all these hardworking people, you know, my old constituents in the West Midlands, people up north, all the people who run businesses still collect the taxes, pay the taxes. They have HMRC on their back all the time, chasing them to pay every little penny, using often technicalities to uh, uh, collect this money off them, which takes possible investment from them, which could be directed into better use. And meanwhile, they're handing this money out to fraudsters. And there's no accountability. I think they've already written off about four and a half billion. I think the total bounce back loans are more like 45 billion. And goodness knows how much they're going to write off in the end. That's before we get to the Sybil's loans, which are slightly more secure because you've actually got the banks responsible for 20% of those. So I, I, I think we've got a situation where anything, and, and you've only got to look at, you know, the Soviet Russia, you know, you get state central planning. It never works. Mm. Mm. You need the entrepreneur. You need people to be making decisions that make sense. You need it to be bottom up, not top down. You actually need long-term investment rather than just short-term uh, uh, sort of money printing to cover up cracks. And I, and I think everybody, the extraordinary thing is I don't think a lot of people fully understand it, so they're just so busy with their own lives. But actually, Q, quantitative easing is, if you or I did it, we'd be in prison. Mm -hmm. But it's being done in our name by an unaccountable Bank of England and Andrew Bailey 
who presided over, let's face it, when he was at the FCA, some pretty big disasters like LCF. Uh, and you know, another bureaucrat who's, who's definitely been overpromoted, Andrew Bailey. Uh, so we've got a situation now, I think, where the hardworking core of the countries, which I love and, and, and respect, is being let down by this unaccountable pool of uh, Westminster reverse Darwinist uh, sort of <laughs> creatures who are supposed to be holding the civil service to account. And that, to me, is the most extraordinary. It's, more, it's extraordinary that people aren't more angry about it. Do you think part of the problem, Rupert, is, and we touched on it, which is they've never run anything, these politicians, but most of them, they don't even have experience of ordinary life. What they do is they go to schools, then they go to university, normally Oxford and Cambridge, where they do PPE. Then they do some type of masters. Then they go in to become a political researcher. You've never experienced the real world. You don't know how the real world works. And if that being the case, how are you then going to go into a position of power where you're running the real world? Well, absolutely, you can't. So the whole political structure is based on, if you like, snakes and ladders in a little sort of false world where, as you say, you 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 clamber up the... Tory party or the Labour ladder, uh, you hope you don't upset anybody. So very often you, you, you the people who, who thrive are people who learn not to tell the truth. <laughs> uh, so you end up actually, as I say, with this reverse Darwinist situation. And most of them, I, I honestly don't think they, a bit like Boris, I don't think they're that bothered about long term, because as far as they're concerned, life is a game. Uh, and it's not a game for a lot of people. You know, a lot of people, long term, if you, if you look at Britain, what do we owe our success to? I'll tell you what I think. I mean, I think we owe it to the Victorians who were hardworking. Uh, if they said they were going to do something, they did it. They uh, actually delivered an economy that probably, for a population that we had then, whatever it was, 50, 60 million, was probably arguably the most successful economy there's ever been. And off the back of that, we were able to do quite a lot of things with friendly societies, with, you know, ultimately that's the, that's the genesis of the NHS, I think, you know, the fact we had all this wealth. But if we don't invest long term and create proper businesses and actually proper structures that make sense, you know, print, printing money, in the end, will just be overrun by, by, by the Asian uh, workhouses, which basically become far more productive than us. And it, it'll happen a bit like the world doing a 360-degree flip. So all, everybody here is very complacent, I think, because suddenly we could see this, this, this whole thing change. And instead of accepting our currencies, these people are going to say, well, hang on, these guys are just printing it. They've got nothing behind it. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the war was a big issue. We won the war. We basically won the peace. But sooner or later, this, this lack of... Uh, long-term planning and lack of leadership by by a, a proper uh, elite uh, is going to effectively affect everybody's lives. And it's time people started talking about it, I think. Well, one of the things that I think when you talk about quantitative easing that I've been saying for quite some time, and I think it was compounded, obviously, by the reaction to COVID and the amount of money that was spent on dealing with that or the perceived threat or, or whatever you, you want to describe it, is inflation. And, you know, we've had people on the show endlessly to say it's coming, <laughs> it's coming. And, and now and then suddenly I was like, oh, there's inflation coming. And we're like, yeah, we told you. I think we it's told here. You. I think it's here, Constantine. I mean, That's what if, I'm saying. It's here. In the contracting businesses, COP has gone up massively over the last, I mean, not 7%. You're talking 50, 60, 70%. 
you know, steel, conduits gone up the same. You've got, you know, labour hasn't gone up yet, but if, if heating costs keep going up, people are going to start demanding more money for their wages correctly. And then you start to get strikes and you start to get all the malaise that we got in the 70s. It's, it's all happening. What were we told? We were told it's transitory. This is, this is not transitory. This is now embedded in the economy. And it's partly to do with the fact that we aren't productive as we used to be. And you can't just create money out of nothing and expect it to hold value. It's not linked to anything. Yeah. Now there's no gold standard. There's no convertibility to anything. It's, it's all on trust. And I've always been brought up to believe that credit is suspicion asleep. <laughs> and that's ultimately what, you know, as soon as our trading partners become suspicious of us, the game's over. Rupert, don't you think it's quite weird? Because if we were having this conversation and let's say Jeremy Corbyn won the 2019 general election, it would make sense. We're having this, con this conversation under a conservative party. Doesn't that strike you as weird? It, it is bizarre. And I think, you know, Boris Johnson's instincts are actually, uh, on the whole, libertarian. Mm -hmm. I think he respects the individual. But it seems that he wants to build the state up. And I, I think he was even heard to say that if the private sector sheds labour, don't worry, the state will employ it. Which sort of, to me, was shocking. Because mm. the last thing we want, we've already got far too much of a state. We've got far too much ineffective... Uh, you know, government departments in, whether it's HGV licenses, whether it's the passport office, whether it's planning, you know, and all, I come across all this stuff. You know, you can't get any answers out of the planners. You can't get your passport. You can't get an HGV license. You can't get a shotgun license renewed. You know, the whole, if you're going to force regulation on, on people, you've got to deliver an efficient service. Otherwise, get rid of the state, get it out of people's lives and let people interface freely and make their own call. And that's a bit, I feel a bit like that with regard to COVID. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I'm not a non-vaxxer or an anti-vaxxer, but I am a believer in personal choice. I think to have the state telling you you've got to have an injection is against every sort of libertarian code that you could have. That, that's, that does make you an anti-vaxxer. <laughs> well, I, 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 I know, I know, but I, I, I have no problem with people opting to have the vax. Yeah, if that's what they want. Yeah. Of course, of and by, course. By the way, uh, I, I always joke about it being, on the whole, not vaccination, it's gene therapy, because Moderna and Pfizer are gene therapy, whereas actually um, uh, AstraZeneca is the only true vaccine. So... Again, it's very experimental, but it's up to people. If people want it, that's up to them. If people don't want it, it should equally be up to them. But what I think is terrible is divisiveness yeah. within our society as a result of that. And and you know the historical uh, parallels to that are pretty frightening. And I and I think it, it shouldn't be happening here. But on Boris, uh, is he is he capable of of really having any long term view or any principled view? Mm. Probably not. Quite. Well, this is one of the things I think you keep referring to, which is long-term versus short-term. And I think, I mean, I, I think democracy is great, but I think it's inevitable that one of the flaws of democracy is it forces very short-term thinking because the people who are in charge are thinking on a 24-hour planning horizon. They're yep. not thinking ahead. So with all that doom and gloom out of the way, Rupert, what do we do about this? What would you do about this? Well, one's got to hope that the people of the 
Britain, and I think relative to the rest of Europe, we are in a good good position now because we actually it's not are saying we that. Are, <laughs> no, no. But relative to the rest of Europe, we are we are now a free sovereign nation, and yeah. we are capable of determining our own future. So we have actually now got the power back in our own hands. So I, even if the civil service is reluctant to accept the will of the British people, so having been given a vote, they voted to leave. Um, then, then I think we are now going to see the country relative to Europe uh, prosper. And if the right leadership's in place and the right long-term planning, we still have the opportunity to do what I think we should be doing. And I think there's a lot to be uh, optimistic about. But that involves doing radical conservative things, which is what a conservative government should be doing. Like, like what, Rupert? Not the Cor Corbyn uh, <laughs> conservative government that we've got. Well, we should be cutting regulation. We should be encouraging entrepreneurs. We should be... How? How do you encourage well, entrepreneurs? Well, you, 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 you give people tax breaks for investment. You give people... Uh, you cut taxes. You, you allow people to keep the, the, the product of their, of, of their gains. You allow people to make investment uh, uh, against... You know, you, uh, How are we going to pay for all the this interesting, the interesting, social care and the NHS and all of that but while the we're cutting parallel taxes? With that, because that this is what takes, people would argue, That takes right? care of itself. If you have a vibrant economy where everybody's making money they're all paying tax and you know it, it, we know tax if it, the more you put tax up the less tax you collect so why so, do we keep putting tax up then because that's the only way they can even hope to balance the books if you haven't got long-term investment you have to keep doing that. that's actually the only thing that's kept us going is qe and i keep coming back to qe without qe reality would have would have been would have been blowing through the corridors of power but it, it doesn't happen because they don't they don't let it happen. So I, the answering your question, cut regulation, uh, release the individual, uh, basically become an offshore trading country, which we used to be offshore Europe. We were always the balance of power in Europe against either you know Germany or France. Who always had these continental conquests. We've never wanted to conquer people. We want to trade with them. So what we should do is do what we're best at, trade, and and we should be having if you had a a government and its its apparatus that believed in that, you actually could structure it so that you release the innate ability of the British people. But we're not going to do that by increasing national insurance and pumping it into the NHS with no reform to the NHS, which, like it, and again, it, 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 it's a wonderful thing for a lot of people, but it's got to be efficient, it's got to be reformed. It's, it's, it's an inefficient organ. Uh, and But no politician is ever going to touch the NHS at the moment. It's become, you know, half a cut above itself, and somebody's got to take it in, 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 in under control and sort it out, or it's going to bleed us all dry. It's, it's, it's going to, it's going to kill off this entrepreneurial spirit that we should be able to release, which would then allow us to fund uh, 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 the NHS and other uh, good causes for the majority of the, the, the people in the country. But. Rupert, isn't the problem that we have a whole generation of politicians who don't want to make difficult decisions? They yes. don't want to be seen as unpopular. Now, let's look at Thatcher. You may like her, you may dislike her, you may not like her vision for the country. Number one, she had a vision, unlike this lot. And number two, she was very, very willing to make herself, herself absolutely despised by a certain section of society. Yes. I don't think any of this lot would be would, would want that. And also, likewise, just for balance, I think I disagree with him on a lot of things, but Tony Blair, the same. Now, there's a lot to criticise, but he was willing to make difficult decisions at certain points. But if we talk about Thatcher, uh, first, as you raised Thatcher, she, I, I, I was an admirer of Thatcher. She's, mm. you know, her upbringing... 
I guessed that, Ruth. That wasn't a surprise, <laughs> was it? <laughs> not, not, not for any other reason than I think she... If you look at Britain, and I'm probably older than you guys, so I, you, you probably weren't around. I can remember the 70s where yeah. petrol was going up every mm. day, inflation was flying, you know, there was no investment. We had, you know, Callaghan in office having sandwiches with the trade unions who were running the country. The whole thing was... We were, we were a laughing stock. So Thatcher took control of it. And I, you should read a book, if you haven't read it, called Here Today, Gone Tomorrow by, by John Knott. And she would have definitely lost the election because uh, she tried to make sense of everything. And I think, you know, this short-term uh, view that prevails, and you're quite right, it does prevail, she would have had her head cut off if it hadn't been for the Falklands War. And so the Falklands were invaded. She went in again took a dangerous decision, won the war, and as a result of that, she was untouchable after that. That gave her the length of time to be able to make mm. change. And I think you've got to give other people around her credit, you know, Lawson, you've got to give, you know, other people who actually, uh, if you like, empowered mm. Britain. And, you know, I remember going to Singapore to, to meet the, the government of Singapore Investment Corporation just as all this was happening, and they said this is the first time in 50 years that we've seen uh, light at the end of the tunnel in Britain. We're investing in Britain because we can see it's it's a vibrant place where opportunities abounds and people are going to do well. So we've now, if you like, almost gone full circle. And it, isn't it depressing that we've now got a Conservative government that's running the country like Corbyn would have done? Which, look, I agree with you because I look at this this government, I don't know what they are anymore. I look at the Labour Party, I don't know what they are anymore. They're the only two realistic options. Doesn't that mean we're in a political crisis? Well, how do we get out of this? We've got a political crisis. We've got Richard Tyson reform. <laughs> <laughs> well done for getting so, the plug in. So there, there. He's blocked um, us on Twitter for no reason whatsoever. So you're not, you're banned from discussing <laughs> Richard Tyson. I have no idea. I'm just joking. But has he? He, he has blocked us on Twitter. I have That's no idea why. That's not very clever. Yeah, it's not wise, is it? Fellow libertarians like yeah. you guys, you should be, he should be, he should be helping. I agree yeah. with you. But, but look, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, we don't meet many people with your sort of attitude in this country. And as an outsider, I've always wondered about this because, as you say, during the Victorian era, this was the engine of, of, you know, of innovation and drive and creativity in that way. But what, what the, the values you're talking about, I associate much more with America. In this country, in my experience, most people aren't driven to achieve, aren't driven to create. And I hope I'm not slandering the British public because, of course, people like that exist too. But why why have we not got quite as much of that sort of thing that you're talking about, which is starting businesses, creating things, building I don't know, things? but I, I do think there's a lot more uh, underlying wealth. I think the, the English aren't like them or British aren't like the Americans Wealth, you know, to show wealth is a, is, a, is a thoroughly bad thing and everybody's been brought up to think that. So, yeah. But there's a lot more wealth and historical wealth as well still still residing here. Mm. Uh, and, you know, I think America, a lot of the wokery and the, and, and, and the, the sort of, I, I think, terrible things we do import from America, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of political correctness and all the other stuff. I mean, when are people going to get back to interfacing with each other and respecting each other and debating things, even if it's difficult to debate them? As we, you know, as, as, as I think we said earlier, the, the old Labour attitude, the Wedgie Ben, the Peter Shaw, all these people, they, they were true, uh, if you like, British patriots. They had a different view, and I res but I respect it. I love listening to the Wedgie Ben tapes. It's absolutely fantastic listening. For those people who haven't listened to him, it's great. You know, he was an honest guy, 
okay, he came from a rich family, but he was had a socialist view, that's fine. Why can't we all debate these things and have a difference of opinion and then we get at the truth? But that's not the way people operate today. It seems that nobody's prepared to listen to a point of view that they don't like. Again, I think partly that comes back to another of my favourite beefs, which is the BBC. I can't wait to see the back of the BBC. I think the BBC is a is a cancer at the heart of Britain. It's, 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 <laughs> well done for putting it, that it, mildly. <laughs> it, 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 it actually, it's a centrally planned uh, sort, of, sort of self-important organisation mm. which doesn't represent the views of certainly my old constituency in the West Midlands, most of Yorkshire and a lot of other uh, parts of, 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 of the country. And it certainly didn't reflect that over Brexit. It was, it was completely partisan, which, as you know, Reith, uh, uh, his original founding... Doctrine was it should be completely impartial and it should inform, entertain and educate. Does it inform? No. Does it educate? No. Does it entertain? Very definitely not. Mm. So it doesn't do any of those things now. And if it's such a national treasure, it should be defunded and it should then stand on its own two feet like everybody else. And then if, we, if they want to spout their woke views on life and they want to distort the way in which everybody lives their lives, if people want, don't want to listen to it, they can turn it off. But why should we all have to pay £157.50 or 159 quid, whatever it is, to fund this monster, which gives everybody the wrong impression? So in answer to your question, cut free of the BBC, cut free of a lot of this sort of uh, uh, dogma that, that gets pushed down people's throats every day. I actually think you've got an innately productive people here who mm. could who could actually make a major contribution, not only to the... The, the success and wealth of this country, but also it could help Europe and the rest of the world. Look Rupert. at look at look at look at what we invent. We most of the good things that have been invented in the world come from the UK. One well, so does another. Marmite. So it's it's a bit <laughs> of a bad. Marmite. Yeah, I love Marmite as <laughs> yeah, well. You're both wrong, <laughs> uh, Rupert. The one the one aspect of the BBC that I will push back on is this. I worry about the polarisation of society. I look at American media. You've got MSNBC on one hand, Fox News on the other. Never the twain shall meet. There's people who go on MSNBC. They have a conversation with themselves. Same with Fox News. Do you not think that the BBC has this power to be this unifying force in the centre where we can get people on from libertarian right, you know, uh, you know the, the woke left, and try and bring together so we can have a discussion? Not just those people, people in the centre and everybody. I don't think you can... St- I don't think you can rely on on a, a, a sort of broadcaster who has lost its way because it isn't impartial. I think everybody would, would accept that. So if it's deficient and the head of the beast is wrong, as they always say, fish rots from the head. Uh, if it's wrong up there, it's never going to be this unifying uh, uh, agent, uh, which which again is desirable if you could achieve it. And I think... When the BBC was founded, I think it was genuinely uh, a principled organisation which did try to achieve that. I think it's become, it's lost its way and is the right way to achieve what you what you are hoping to achieve to have a, a licence fee which everybody has to pay regardless of whether they want to or not. And most of the young people, if you talk to, do a, do a survey of young people, my children, I've got four children under 30 years old, uh, they, none of them watch watch the BBC, they all object to the, the TV licence. Why should they have to pay it? They don't use it to get their news. I mean, the only justification possibly for the BBC would be a completely impartial news service, which gave the the, the British people 
uh, a news which is completely un, uh, unaffected or, un, if you like... Um, Unbiased. Unbiased. Right. Completely unbiased. And it hasn't had any PR spin or any, you know, anybody sort of spinning it. So it's just pure news. So they can make their minds up about, about life. But I don't see there's a justification for the BBC. I actually think they create more division now. I think they, their main role in life is to create division between the rich and the poor. You know, and as Lincoln said, you don't make the poor richer by making the rich poorer. So what we've got to do is try and make the poor richer by playing a part in a vibrant society that believes in itself uh, and bringing them up that way. You can't do it by creating this sort of division and envy. And the problem we've got now is in the past you didn't have as much envy because people didn't know how other people lived. So they, <laughs> yeah. they lived their lives in however they found their lives to be. Now you can become a voyeur and you can, and let's face it, all the media people are trying to show how these sort of Russian oligarchs live or how, you know, the billionaires live and, 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 and the life they live. And people, people uh, are envious. So it, it's already, the envy is already there. So we don't want divided society. We want a society that works together. So I, I don't think the BBC achieves that now. I think they've, they're an agent for bad, not for good. And I personally, if people want to watch it again, I'm a great believer in free choice. Uh, if you want to charge 160 quid, fine. Do it by subscription. And those people who want it can pay for it. Do you think it's inevitable that it's going to get defunded? I hope so. I think it's outlived its useful life. So I'm totally in favour. And I make no bones about it on Twitter. It's one of my favourite uh, uh, subjects. And I, yeah. and I think it should go. I think the sooner it goes, the better. The sooner we've got a chance of then releasing this innate entrepreneurialism of, of, of the British people. Well, you know what? Francis and I are both originally coming from a position that he articulated, which is the BBC has the potential to be a unifying force, but I don't see them making any attempt to do that. Uh, and and the, the sort of Soviet-style state control thing that you're talking about is true. I mean, we look at... So, so we're in the podcasting world or making a YouTube show world, and we see what they do when they want to create some podcasts. And it is literally like, let's tick some boxes, let's pick people who look the right way or whatever. Um, and that's not how you create a new business or a new podcast or whatever. It has to be uh, on merit. It has to be, uh, there has to be a market for it. This has to be lots of people. And the BBC isn't constrained by those things. So I think- well, any organisation that can spend $100 million on diversity and inclusion has got to have got it badly wrong. They'll probably get <laughs> diversity and inclusion right, but then the content won't be very good. That's that. Those are the trade-offs. Um, so, but come, come. I, it's interesting the point that you made about envy because I, I see a lot of it, and I think maybe part of it is that there is a feeling that social mobility has declined. I don't mind you being a billionaire if I feel that if I work hard and make the right choices and do the right things and uh, and start a business and that business does well, then I'm going to get to a place in my life where I have what I want and et cetera, et cetera, right? But I think for a lot of people, particularly with the lack of innovative spirit, as you talk about, there is a feeling in this country where like if, you, if you're born at the bottom, you're kind of stuck there. Uh, and there's going to be people, the woke people that you mentioned coming and telling you that, you, you know, you're stuck there because society's evil and it's oppressive and it's you're disenfranchised. And by the way, that's true. It is true that society 
disadvantages certain people more than others. Some people are born with more opportunities than others. They have a, a, a father who has more contacts or they have money in the bank. Those things will help. That's true, but nature differentiates by giving... Some people, somebody a better brain, somebody a better absolutely. eye, somebody whatever. So we, you know, we're I not born equal. Uh, equal. We're not. Uh, and I actually think, relative to other countries, I've never thought this is a racist country. I, I think, you know, I, I, and if you talk to the cab drivers and that sort, of, most of them say, well, maybe thirty years ago, yeah, uh, as an Indian taxi driver, you might have got some people who were racist, which is horrific. But at the end of the day, now I, I'm quite proud of this country. I think mm -hmm. to beat ourselves up, we are probably the most fair-minded people uh, in the world. That's and I, always been and my I think view. to beat ourselves up is completely wrong. So, you know, I, I, I just I just think we, we just need a bit more confidence that actually we're, 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 we're fine. And I, with regard to your people who say they don't get opportunity, there's plenty of opportunity here. It's true. And, you know, if you look at businesses now, look at, look at these really successful businesses. Most of them were founded in 2000. 2003, 2005. And, you know, they're founded from nothing and they've been founded by people who've got brain power. So in, in a way, what's happening is, and this is what we've got to make sure that happens, is your brain power is becoming the currency. Yes, mm. it's true. And what brain power is doing is, it's with true. the help of the QE merchants, it's this piece of paper that's backed by nothing is going to be destroyed by the ability of the individual to outthink and, and out... Uh, you know, out design yeah. and out entrepreneur a flat-footed state that's run by, as we say, the reverse Darwinists. Yeah, I mean, I'm playing so, devil's advocate to you, Rupert, but I, I know, I, I but can't. I'm... But I can't disagree because here's the truth: if you want to start something, a creative business, a podcast, a YouTube show, design a new widget or whatever, there's never been a better time. The capital you need to do that, it's not like you've got to build a factory. No, no. no. It's not like you've got to make billions of capital investment to do it. Yeah. In fact, with 3D printing, right. digital printing, you can you can almost now print stuff that you used to have to have a factory to mm. make. Yeah. So, you know, there's huge innovation taking place. The digital revolution is massive. And I think, again, it, it gives people individual opportunity. You don't need to be... Uh, I mean, if I've had any, ben any benefit over other people, it's my education. Okay, so I, I am lucky that I've been well-educated, but I didn't choose my parents and I didn't choose where I went to school. They did. But other than that, I've had to get off my backside and go and do it myself, completely. And that's quite right. I think everybody should do that. Now, maybe that's a bit of an advantage, but I tell you what, there's a lot more people who are a lot more clever than I am. So, and, you know, they're brilliant, a lot of people. But what you mustn't do is hold those back. Yeah. But equally, you can't clog up the pores for them to succeed by looking after all the people who aren't that able. They have to accept... Uh, their position, and again, working in Japan, which is an, a fascinating country, you've got a very pyramidal structure. So everybody in Japan sort of accepts where they are. In a way, they're held back far more than we are, because if you're born into a certain part of that triangle, that's where you aspire to be. Here, we don't. We should all be aspirational. We should all want to do well. We have to respect other people. We have to, to say, well, you know, he's successful. I should respect him. I'd like to emulate him and I'm going to get off my backside and do it. And I, I think there's huge opportunity here, not, not least because of the digital revolution. I agree. If anything's holding us back, it's overcomplicated tax laws, which means you have to employ hugely expensive tax lawyers and hugely expensive lawyers. There's far too many 
lawyers and professionals that they, they need to be trimmed back. They're the vast I amounts. I was going to say executed. Vast <laughs> amounts, vast amounts of them who are holding back all these yeah. people. Because yeah. actually, if you simplified, and that wouldn't be difficult to get rid of them, all you need to have a flat rate tax, which actually, you know, has been proved to work better than all this very complicated tax law. And I don't know about you, but I, I used to be able to do my own tax return. I now have to rely on an extremely expensive accountant to do it because it's so complicated. Yeah, mm. that's literally what and, we and, had to and do. And what, what the state's done is it's positioned itself against the individual, so it's trying to rob you without knowing it's robbed you. And then what's it doing? Wasting all the money that it takes off you. It was supposed to be spending that to make your life easier and administer everything correctly. You know, your, your whatever it was, your water, your gas, your electricity. And the Victorians never privatised all their utilities because uh, otherwise they got disease and, you know, things broke down and people didn't invest enough. So I think... You know, I, there's so much that could be changed so easily, but as you say, we've got this, we've got this establishment which is just not fit for purpose. Yeah, and you. it's time for people to start calling them out. Mm. You know, people, the voter, uh, the taxpayer should be complaining. You can't get through to HMRC. It's so complicated. Why do we need all that complication? The FCA they regulate the the city of London out of existence. You know, they worry about a little insider trader and then they miss the huge fraud. They're never going to challenge that. So it's all it's all fiddling around at the lower level. Uh, again, a lot of lawyers and professionals who are looking at the small print, not the big picture. So I, you know, that's oppressive. You've got, you know, as I say, the, the planners now are shocking. You can't get an answer out of them. They're supposed to uh, respond within a certain time, but they don't. What's the sanction if they don't? Well, there doesn't appear to be one. So, uh, you know, if you, the more you centralise everything, and you, you saw this in the USSR, you know, nothing works, and in the end nobody takes any responsibility, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's always somebody else's fault. A bit like a bad-run football club. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't my fault. <laughs> it was him. Anyway, that's enough about Everton. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, but... I'm going to have to protect you from Anton for the rest of the day. Hey Francis, do you like books? I tried one once, wasn't for me mate. Not enough pictures of fit brown birds. Never working with you again. But if you like fantasy, check out the Ripples in Reality series by JS Powell. They're absolutely brilliant and they have a five gold star rating on Amazon. I've heard of them. They're beautifully written and completely original. If you want a book, that allows you to delve into different worlds and helps you escape the insanity of real life, then Ripples in Reality is for you. See, I know the word delve, so I do read books. Amazing. Just imagine books written in the style of Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, Forgotten Realms, with an added pinch of Stargate. It's catnip for people like me. Virgins. <sighs> She started a publishing company named Poppy Field Publishing and her novels are a massive hit with fans who want to read books that are a great read and are not woke. Book one is Shadow Step. And book two, Gather Shadows. She's currently writing book number three, I Can't Wait. I don't read books because I can talk to girls. Your mum doesn't count, mate. And by the way, JS Pal is a big supporter of Trigonometry. She is a moderator on our channel and we really appreciate all her help. You can find her books online at Amazon, Lulu.com and other bookseller websites. If you enjoy the books, please leave a review. The links are in the description. The one thing that I wanted to talk to you about, Rupert, which I think is very interesting, and we, we've touched on it briefly, is the future of Europe. 
because we 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 voted to leave and we've and that was a right that was a right thing to do that's what the public wanted i voted remain i believe that we should have left right that was the right choice but you look at the future of europe and i'm looking at it and as some i don't live there but as somebody who just take, takes a very sort of cursory look at, at at the place and the countries it seems to be descending into chaos. You look at what's happening in Italy. You look at what's happening in France. You look at, you know, lockdown Austria, for Germany. Austria, Austria, Germany. There's civil rights. The economics is in the toilet. It looks like the end of something. Well, I, I think it's in it's in deep trouble. Uh, and, you know, I, I, the way I explain to, to most people who, 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 you know, don't want to, to get into the detail is the difference between us and Europeans is, is quite straightforward. So we... We are libertarian free traders and we have laws uh, and our laws are structured in such a way that, you know, if the law, unless the law says you can't do something, mm. you assume you can. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's the sort of, to use a politically incorrect phrase, the Anglo-Saxon view of life. <laughs> On, in Europe, it's the other way around. Yes. The Europeans, and this is, this is how I explain it to people simply, the Europeans are of the view that unless the law says you can do it, you assume you can't do it. That's the difference between us, the essential difference between us and them. And, you know, the European Parliament, I think, and I, I said this to Nigel Farage after a day there, I said, the only reason I can see this, this place exists, and look, being there was fun. You know, you had lots of debating, you had lots of uh, interesting people, you had, you know, and the concept was fine. But actually, what was it there for? It was there to stop Germany starting another war with France and France stopping another war with Germany mm. <laughs> and roping everybody together. That's what it's there for. And the European people, I think, are suffering. I mean, I don't understand. Uh, I mean, Varoufakis is a man I like. I love reading his books. I think he's, he's a very smart, clever, again, socialist. He doesn't necessarily agree with my view mm. of life, but I respect him as a, as, a, as a clever man. You know, he would have taken Greece out of the euro. I would have taken Greece out of the euro. I'd have gone back to the drachma, I'd have devalued, and I'd have made Greece the primary holiday destination of the rest of Europe, and, and it would have rebuilt itself in no time. Uh, but no, they got bullied into staying. Italy, I mean, I love Italy. My mm, wife and I go too. walking the, the Via Francigena in Italy, and it's the most fantastic country, and the people are fantastic. I love yeah. it. They've got mm. style, they're great with children, they're kind, they're fantastic food, but they're dying on their feet in the Euro. Mm. So the key... A, a bit like here, the BBC, the, the key cancer in Europe is the euro. So the euro was, when they realised that the political experiment was failing, they thought to themselves, we've got to get the currency together. Mm -hmm. So without having, if you like, the, 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 the sort of governments together, they, they rammed the currency through. And that's why I stood for the referendum party in 97, funded by James Goldsmith. He really saved the pound, and £50 million he invested and I, I kept my deposit in the Cotswolds. Uh, I got 6.7% of the vote uh, and returned the deposit to, to Sir James. Uh, so he saved the pound. And the reason we did that was because our establishment, shock horror, thought the, the euro was the best thing since sliced bread. Blair famously came Blair. Yeah. All three, Blair, Major and Paddy Ashdown, yeah. all wanted it. So, you know, but then we got this promise of a referendum, which in the end... Um, uh, and again, everybody says, oh, it's, it, was, it was Gordon Brown. It had nothing to do with Gordon Brown. The referendum party came before Gordon Brown. We'd mm. have been in the euro if, if, we, if Jimmy hadn't got, I think he got 820,000 votes or something. 
Uh, I know because I had a bet with somebody from the Foreign Office, it was he never honoured of a case of champagne. <laughs> he said we wouldn't get half a million votes. So that put enough pressure on them to promise, all three parties promised a referendum, which is why Cameron had a referendum in the end. Didn't need to have it when he did, but he did because he was arrogant enough to think he was going to win it. So I think, you know, Europe's been killed by the euro and the euro must fail. But it's a bit like the USSR. You know, once you've got this elite that's all in, it's never going to admit defeat until, and again, the, the, the communist bloc was so rotten when it fell, there was nothing there. Everybody, everybody thought, I remember the wall coming down, everybody thought it would take 10 years, it took a nanosecond because there was nothing left. It was rotten. And you're going to see that, I think, in Europe. So it'll, it, it, it'll last longer than you think, but when it fails, it'll fail spectacularly. And that's when the real truth about this post-war protectionist bloc, which is what they are, you know, from the common agricultural policy right the way through. It's completely protectionist. It's totally anti-everything that, that really we, we stand for as a trading nation. Um, but we lost our confidence. We went in. You know, we had Ted Heath and, and a bunch of really quite weak leaders then. I mean, it's not, it's not new, this weak leader business. And they took us in because they lost confidence. And we then had Maggie. As you know, Maggie was very Eurosceptic. But I think there's a real shock coming in Europe at some stage. But how long can Italy go on? I, I liken it to withering on the vine. I mean, they're literally, the blood supply is being cut off and they're sort of withering. Um, and they can't thrive until they're out of the euro. But this is what I don't understand. I've never been in business, right? But, but I look, how can you have the same currency for economies as diverse as Germany, Italy, Greece, they're completely different economies with different needs. Look, there's only one solution, the, which is the counterintuitive solution. And you may know the Germans never wanted to join the euro. They got, they got bullied by the French into joining. I didn't in know fact, that. In fact, the Germans, yeah, the Germans wanted to keep the Deutsche Mark. In fact, they've, I used to work for Deutsche Bank. So they, ultimately, they, they were bullied into joining. They've been the main beneficiary of it. So the counterintuitive resolution to this is for Germany to leave the euro and leave all the weak nations and let the euro float down. That'll net that, that, again, this elite that's sort of holding it all together won't let that happen. That's what they should be doing if they want to protect the living standards of the majority of the people in Europe. But I mean, I'm, I'm amazed at how servile most of the European electorate is. They are incredibly servile. And again, look at their history. Uh, you know, they tend to be far less questioning than, than us, far less individualistic, far less... Uh, libertarian, and that's ultimately, I think, the, the root cause of the problem between us and France. There's always been a problem, and I think there always will be. And of and course, you, that difference in attitude you see reflected in the COVID restrictions, the way that, you know, even even though I think all three of us have complained pretty hard about the things that have happened here, and I think a lot of them have been very wrong. The vaccine passports, for example, just outrageous as far as I'm concerned. Outrageous. Outrageous. But w how far they've gone on the continent is a different scale. <laughs> Well, Ma Macron's behaving like a dictator. Right, and look at and Austria. Yet, and yet the cases in France are going through the roof. And right. funny enough, in, in the most jabbed country in the world, Israel, yeah. the stats don't bear looking at. I mean, they're Quite. still jabbing away. And, <laughs> no. and, and Sajit Jabbit, as I like to call him, he, 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 he's, trying to, he's trying to emulate them, or he was yeah. at one time. Yeah. I might pinch that from you if you don't mind, mm -hmm. Sajid Jabbit. But uh, look, there's one thing that we've got about 10 minutes left, and there's one thing that we haven't talked about yet, which is interesting to me, and I think interesting to a lot of people. What is it like to be involved in football? What is it like to run a football club? Well, as I said 
earlier, I got into football by default. So I was I was going to uh, build the football stadium, St. Mary's, which we did build in the end. Again, we had huge trouble with local councils. So just to give you a quick example of how inefficient uh, the local politics of these various places is, originally we were going to build uh, the stadium uh, right next to the airport. So it would have been a fantastic site. So you had Hampshire County Council, council was a Tory council. Southampton City Council was Labour and Eastleigh Borough Council was Liberal. So none of them could agree that water was wet. <laughs> and the site should have been the, the site where we developed yeah. the stadium. Uh, and we would have built it and developed it and project managed it for nothing just to have the stadium. But no, they couldn't agree. So in the end, Southampton City Council, to their credit, helped us. It was the old Transco site, so we had to spend a fortune uh, cleaning up all the oil residue and then we had to do the archaeology which was interesting because it's on the ancient settlement of Hamwick so we did find some quite interesting trading relics as we've always been traders with northern Europe so that it was very interesting we found lots of stuff there which we put on on show in, in the stadium so we built St Mary's but I had no idea when I got when we did the reverse takeover and I became chairman of the holding company and Guy Ascombe who's a fantastic man my previous chairman he was remained chairman of the football club, and then we were going to be relegated. Uh, and we we had, I think, uh, twenty seven points from thirty one games. We were bottom, and Guy Askham said to me, "You need to be chairman of both companies to uh, bring some sense and, and rationalisation when we go down and we lose a lot of the Premier League income." So I thought, "Well, I'm not going to do that without having a bit of a bit of a fight." So. Shock, horror, unlike any chairman before, I started going to the dressing room because, I, as I said, I used to play reasonably competitive hockey and I'm not frightened of a dressing room. And to cut a long story short, we, in, the, in those final seven games, we, 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 we got, I think, 13 points. Because uh, we had no, 14 points. We ended up, I think, with 41 points from memory. And if you remember, I think Middlesbrough went down that year. And we stayed up. And that's when Sooness then resigned. And I was then... Uh, uh, then Laurie McMenemy resigned... Uh, having stitched me up. So 20, first of all, Sooness, I said, well, if you're going to go, Laurie, you resign together. But no, he. we wrote the press release together. Laurie McMenemy says this. And then 24 hours later, Laurie resigned. And then there's me on, on virtually every back page of most tabloids looking like a child molester <laughs> uh, with a border running around it saying Southampton crisis. <laughs> so I just shut the phones off. And in the end, uh, you know, I hired um, uh, Dave Jones. Mm-hmm. And we didn't do very well to start with. I had the whole stadium. I think, I think the joke at Southampton after the first uh, 10 games of that season, I think we had one point. And the joke going round was, what's the difference between Southampton and a cocktail stick? The answer to which is, a cocktail stick's got two points. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and the ch crowd were chanting Rupert Lozer, W-A-N-K-E-R. And, you know, I mean, yeah. and I thought, what am I doing? Mm. Right. Anyway, then it all came right. With that, the, Rupert, sorry to interrupt because it's fascinating. What is that like? Because stressful. No one in very few people, even we, we get a lot of hate online from everybody, right? But that's different. That's different. When it's online, I can go. This person sitting in the mother's basement. They haven't. 
But you've got 50,000 people. Who it's paid... 15 and a half thousand at the Dell. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but let's say. I told my wife it wasn't true. <laughs> and I had to pretend I, 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 I wasn't affected by it. Which I, you have to show outwardly no, no, no sign of... But there's 15,000 people who've you, paid 25 quid or whatever to see a game it. to chant Rupert Lowe as a wanker. In and own, you're there. In your own stadium. In your own stadium. I think we lost 2-0 to Leeds that. It was an evening game. <laughs> anyway, we then... We, I remember uh, Christopher Bland was at the next game, we were playing West Ham, and the, the punters were lobbing, you know, their, their programmes at us, and Christopher Bland got hit on the shoulder by a, a projectile. This is West Ham. Mm. And we beat West Ham 3-0, and then we didn't look back. We beat Liverpool, Lamfield, and by Christmas, I think we were 11th in the league or something, so yeah. it all calmed down. The best I ever got, uh, being, as they called me, a toff and a public school boy, mm. was... Uh, being left alone if we were doing well, which on the whole we did. So um, the so we, what do I think of football? I loved it because I'm I'm competitive. I love sport. I, I now play reasonably good tennis because I'm getting too old to you know charge around a hockey pitch or football pitch. Um, but I loved it. I mean, it's, it's the best thing, and probably the best day of my life was going to uh, the Millennium Stadium in Cardiff when we got to the cup final. And we, we lost 1-0 to Arsenal, but you, you, you'd think from our fans that we'd won. Uh, we should have won. I mean, I, you know, uh, little Brett Ormrod hit the post, I think, and had we got... Arsenal actually weren't on form that day, but they won 1-0. But so we built it. I built the Youth Academy because we were never going to be able to compete because football's like war. You have to have a big economy. So the stadium gave us a bigger economy. Uh, you know, we got... We, we, we now we used to fill St Mary's, which is 32,000 uh, seats, 32 and a half, but we, could, we had to, uh, because of health and safety, we had to separate and lost a few seats. Um, so, and we got stronger and stronger, you know, got to the cup final. I hired Clive Wood, which I thought was a stroke of genius, but then I got butchered in the media. And then, bizarrely, the fans didn't hold, they don't tend to hold their... I never like to call them managers. I like to call them head coaches because mm. that's ultimately that's the correct. Uh, that's what they do. Um, so I built the academy up. I loved the academy, and we got some great young players like Walcott and Bale and Shaw and Oxlade Chamberlain and Lalana, and you, you know, it goes on and on. So we we trained these people. I brought a coach in from France for the academy. I brought in procurement. We went around finding people from all the all the best people from clubs. So I, rather than buying success, we were trying to train success. Mm. But that's not what the industry wants because it's quite corrupt and mm. lots of people make lots of money out of it. So, you know, the big clubs like to dominate it. They don't mind the odd cup victory of a little club. It's quite romantic, but they don't like it if the little clubs start to do too well. And that model wouldn't work for them because actually you've only got 11 people on the pitch and if they're trained properly and they're mentally prepared properly, there's no reason why they can't roll over people who spend a lot more money. But they control it because if your if your little kids go out onto the pitch at Old Trafford, and they the, the previous week it's been about you know wonderful Manchester United and struggling Southampton. A lot of football is won off the pitch. These guys go out on the pitch. They don't believe they're going to win, so they don't win. And you know that so the dominance of the big clubs is. It's almost a tribal thing, you know, and you go, your children go to a football school. So my little kids were the only two in Saints outfits. So probably maybe six or seven Man U, five Arsenal, some Liverpool, and they'd all, they'd all you know, take the Michael out of the little Southampton lads. 
So that's how it's it's all a sort of again it's collectivism. It's 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 that's what it's become. Uh, so I loved it, and it's a terribly corrupt industry. Uh, Why is it? Let's 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 go into it. So how is it corrupt? How is it corrupt? If it's corrupt because it's dominated by the agents. Uh, I always wanted the Premier League to make it illegal for uh, an agent to collect a fee from both a club and a player. And if the player retained the agent, he should pay the agent. But no, the big clubs didn't want that because they could pay the agents far more than the little clubs. So they ended up getting the players they wanted. So there's all sorts of stuff that goes on in there. And it's, it is, it, trust me, it's terribly corrupt. And it's disappointing because it's such, it's such an important uh, 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 game for so many people in the country. And it, you sort of hope it might be honest and you sort of hope it might be structured properly. But then you look at the Premier League now. I mean, it's gone woke. I, I don't understand why, you know, all this business of taking the knee, that shouldn't be for the Premier League to push that stuff. That should be, that should actually be for the individual, not the Premier League. Mm. Why not, Rupert? Some people might say, and again, no. play devil's advocate, that they might say, well, look, a, a lot of young quite, people... Quite apart from the fact that BLM is a thoroughly bad organisation. No, uh, there's no disagreement know. here about that, but that's not my point. My point is, that's your personal view, that's and it's my, my view. personal yeah. view, and it's probably France's personal view, but... Forgetting about the organization, a lot of people might say, this is the argument that people I think often put forward is, uh, that the footballers are hugely respected by young people in particular, and what they do and how they conduct themselves as role models for, for others is important. And this is a huge opportunity to address this important social issue. I think you can address it in a much better way. Uh, I mean, I mean, the truth is that a lot of young footballers, the biggest problem they have is when they start to earn money and they, they go off the rails a bit. And, you know, far more important to put a structure around them and try and protect them from that, if you can. I, I, again, I think the BLM taking the knee, as, as you know, a lot of the black players didn't want to do that because they thought it, was, it, it wasn't right that they should do it. So, you know, there were some people who took objection to it. I, I really, I personally think it's not. I think they devalued their brand by doing it. I don't think it's up to them. I think quite apart from the fact that BLM is a bad organisation anyway. Uh, and I don't think this country is, is racist. I don't think we need that to be underlined. So therefore, you know, I don't think that should be shoved down people's throats. It's a bit like being told you've got to wear a mask or you've got to have a vaccine passport. It's all part of this prescriptive society that yeah. has its roots in health and safety and all the other stuff. I mean, I... Look, obviously one needs to take care uh, to protect people, but to treat them like numpties and, you know, legislate, a lot of this stuff comes from the sort of the health and safety. And in the, in the end, you and I are responsible for our own health and safety. That's, that's how it always used to be. And if you aren't clever enough, or if you're too stupid to look after yourself, in the end, you're going to get hurt. So it's all about individual empowerment and, and it's about individual decision making. That's what we've got to release here. We've got great people. But if you cow them uh, and they all behave like, you know, as I say, the, 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 the sort of re reverse Darwinist plan, uh, then you'll destroy this innate uh, creativity and entrepreneurialism. I, I, we've got to uh, allow the libertarian agenda to, 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 to remain here. Well, Rupert, collectivism well, mustn't be allowed to succeed. <laughs> uh, on that happy note, our time is up. Thank you so much for coming in. We have, as always, just one more question for you before we do our special questions for our locals only supporters. So here we go. Uh, and the last question is always what's the one thing we're not talking about, but we really should be? 
Uh, farming. Tell us more. Well, I, uh, farming is an incredibly important part uh, of, of the country. We, we have a great farming industry. Uh, there aren't enough young people going into it. There's not enough encouragement uh, to produce our own food here. Food security is incredibly important. Uh, we're an island, as we've seen with gas. You know, if, if you don't make the use of your own uh, innate reserves and, and resources, you end up relying on, on Mr. Putin and Russia for your gas. Uh, so again, a bit like the, 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 the supply of gas, farming needs, it needs more attention, more planning, more support. And British farming is one of our most successful uh, uh, industries, which is often overlooked. Hmm. That is very, very interesting. And in fact, we're currently looking at a few guests to come on to talk to us about farming. So thank you, Rupert. If people want to find you online, where is the best place to do that? I'm, I'm at Rupert Low 10 on Twitter. Uh, and I'm at Rupert Low 10 because when I went on to Twitter at Nigel Farage's insistence when I stood for the Brexit party, I found there were nine Saints fans who'd plagiarised my Twitter. Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank you all for watching and listening. We'll see you very soon with another brilliant episode like this one or Raw Show. All of them go out at 7 p.m. UK time. And for those of you who like your trigonometry on the go, it's also available as a podcast. Take care and see you soon, guys. So Mandrick had sent me a rotting duck, a bit like the Mafia, because <laughs> uh, I wouldn't let Redknapp go. It arrived in a... <laughs>